But in that interview, he said, John, you could be sitting in some little hole of hole in the wall office someplace, not having any money, and could go bankrupt at any time. How do I know you? I can trust you. And I said, Well, I could be sitting in a hole in the wall place. I, I mean, all of that could happen, but you can trust me because I've had a reputation of being trustworthy. So the article came out. It was like 125% positive. Several years later. I was having dinner with him, my wife and his wife, and Paul. And I said, you remember the last question you stated to me in the interview? He said, I can't remember what it was. And he had a little bit more New York uh, flavor to his question. But I said, Paul, you said to me I could be sitting in a little hole in the wall office someplace in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, without any money. And I looked at him and I said... And you were right. <laughs> this is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Hey everyone, welcome back to a very special episode of the Better Wealth Podcast. And wow, I don't know how I give an intro to John Noel, but this guy, first of all, has impacted my life in insane ways, has really given me the permission to live my life, uh, the way that I'm living. And, and he was very instrumental in me leaving the bank and has heard a lot of bad ideas. And, and you might be asking, okay, who, why, why is John the one that you're going to and, and, and talking to and getting mentored by? Well, it, it's plain and simple. John is the most successful entrepreneur that I've ever been able to get mentored by and learn from. And the fact that I got to start talking and, and learning from him when I was 19 years old was really, really special. So John grew up in Stevens Point, has built very successful companies in in the travel insurance space, has sold his last um, company to Warren Buffett, and runs call centers, real estate, and just, I mean, has a mansion and many cars. And But more importantly, he, he like is also super generous as it relates to, as he puts money into the university systems, John and, and his wife has have the largest orphanage of its kind in Kenya, Africa, and is super passionate about sustainable giving. They're, they helped found the Boys and Girls Club, and they just give to so many causes. In fact, they use their beautiful house to, um, I, I think half the time, people are over there doing different charity events, and they're just so passionate about giving back to their community, giving back to the world, and and yet... They've been so successful. I, I mean, I, I referenced this when I was in when I was in his office. I mean, he has pictures of the presidents that he's that he's you know knows personally, and it's just it's just really really humbling to be with someone who's accomplished so much, but then can come down on my level and and listen so well. And that's one one of the things that you'll pick up on this. Another thing is for those of you that have been in interviews or that have had the opportunity to interview people, I think sometimes we have expectations and and for me we were at his house and I've wanted to do this. I wanted I've wanted to interview him for the last 2 years just because I've learned so much from him. Like, oh, it's just an incredible person and we I mean, this was a long interview. This was we had to edit stuff out because it just was it was just amazing, but it was long. And we got, I mean, interrupted a couple times. And, and so in, in the interview, I was thinking, okay, I hope this turns out well. And when I re-listen to it, I want to encourage you to do this. 
I want you to really listen to his stories. John has shared some of the most precious stories as it relates to his marriage, as it relates to how he raises his kids, as it relates to growing his business and the failures that he's made, as it relates to giving. And it would mean the world to me if he took a step back and really reflected on how, why, why he shared his stories, number one, but how he talks and, and why he decided to share the stories that he did. I think it's really, really going to speak to you. Uh, also, I want to just let you know that during my time in meeting with him, when, especially when I first started speaking to him, he, he got diagnosed with a, a Lewy body de- disease, which is a form of dementia, and it rocked my world, it rocked his world and people in business. And, and while it's taken a big toll on his life, He's, I, I'm so grateful to let you know that he's been fighting it strong and, and it's, it, it has not been progressing the way that everyone thought it was. And so um, I think it is also just a really good example that life is short and it's precious and, and we don't want to take it for granted at all. So without further ado, here's my good friend, John Noel. When at war, prepare for peace. When at peace, prepare for war. We've got a war on our hands, and we're going to be as ready as we can. None of you are going to lose your jobs. Patty and I have savings enough to take care of the company for seven months, and we're going to work our way out of this. We're going to do it by going out and selling, taking market share. We're going to increase our sales staff from 45 to 200, and those salespeople are going to be some of you because you're not going to have any calls coming in to buy travel insurance. So we're going to all work together. We're going to open up a SWAT team headquarters and you're going to help us get our business. That was in September. By December, we had regained our business and built on that. So the following year, we actually were beating our numbers. But an important thing went along with that and that was living up to our promises We promised our customers and our agents that we would pay them if they were just afraid to go, which was the only insurance company in the world that did that. So John, this conversation is something I've been looking forward to for the last two and a half years. Being here with you um, brings back some really crazy memories, and I, I just want to bring people back to when I was 19 years old. N- 19 years old, wanting to conquer the world, and nervous, walking into your office. I, I knew you were the person to talk to, because you were the most successful person that I ever like would have imagined talking to. It took me two months to get on your calendar. I remember giving you like a 20, 20 minute like who I am, about my family, about what I want to accomplish. And I remember being done and I, and I just stopped and you just stared at me and you said, I'm waiting for you to continue. And in that moment, I'm like, crap, like I have nothing else to say. And, and then I remember, you know, making something up. And from there, I asked you at the end of that meeting, I said, John, I want to be as successful as you someday. So by the way, I need someone like you to mentor me. The reason that I do that in having conversations, I try to be a super listener. The reason that I keep listening is because the deeper person's personality and character comes out as they run out of things to talk about. Then they talk about those things that are closer in their hearts. 
And that's what you did that day. Well, and that's that's what you've done consistently for the last three years is I will come in with an agenda, talk to you about what I want to talk to you about. And then the things that mean the most are after when we really talk about girls, when we talk about real business issues, when we talk about politics, when we talk about all those things that like aren't conventional. Um, that's where my growth has really been as a person. And I just want to thank you. I mean, you have impacted my life greatly. You've believed in me. And I am the kind of person I am today. And I'm doing what I'm doing now because of people like you that at 19 years old, I'm still at the bank saying, I believe in you. And you encouraged me and you've been with me every step of the way. And so thank you. It's awfully nice for you to give me credit, but all the credit is on your example of energy and brains and you're doing a great job. Thanks. All right. So the purpose of this conversation, and this is a conversation, is, listen, no one's going to live forever. And the impact that you've had on this world, I mean, I am in your office. I'm looking at presidents of the United States that you have pictures with. You And we're going to go into all this. You have the, a massive foundation. You've built crazy successful businesses. You've had been friends with very, very influential people. How in the world? Like, I want to hear your story. And I, I've had the pleasure of picking up on, like, things throughout your story, but I've never heard your story from the beginning to end. And I just want to capture it because people that will be impacted while you're alive is going to be huge, but this is going to live on forever. And that's really significant to me. Well, I'll tell you a story. This happened in Kenya. And I was on a trip with Richard Holbrook, and Richard was a former United Nations ambassador and chief peace negotiator for the Paris Peace Accords with North and South Vietnam. And we were going there for World AIDS Day. But what interfered with it was my dear friend and colleague in the work that I do in Kenya, Father Angelo D'Agostino, passed away. And he passed away just before we were opening the huge project that we started in Kenya to take care of 1,000 babies and children that were homeless due to HIV-AIDS. I was standing in the receiving line in Nairobi at the cathedral, and all of a sudden three black cars came up, big black bulletproof cars, and here it was the president of Kenya, President Kibaki, and his wife Lucy. She went through the receiving line ahead of President Kabaki, and she got to me and she threw her hands up in the air and said, John, so great to see you, and gave me a big hug. And everyone in the receiving line was looking like, how does that guy from the United States know the president's wife? And the story behind that was I met them at the Pentagon several months prior to that. But more about that event, Father Dag's funeral, So we go to the cemetery, and we're lowering Father D'Agostino's casket into the grave. And Sister Mary, his colleague, her phone goes off in the middle of the ceremony, and she answers it and starts talking. And I said, Sister Mary, please, out of respect for Father Dag, put your phone away. She said, I can't. It's the president's wife calling, Lucy Kabaki. So she finished the conversation. She said, the President's Secret Service wants to pick you up at the front gate of the cemetery. So I went to the their White House, which is a White House, and 
was ushered into Mrs. Kabaki's office where we talked for half an hour, 45 minutes, and found out what she could do for Father Dag's projects. And then when she got done, she said, now there's one other person that I want to introduce you to. And I said, who's that? She said, well, come with me. So we went out in the hallway and we walked down the long hallway. We got to a double door and opened it up and there was President Kabaki. And she said to me, John, the president wants to see you, but he does not want you to get down on your knees again like you did the last time you saw him. What she's referring to is when I went to a state luncheon in Washington, D.C. with Colin Powell. So the last time I had seen the president, I was at a State Department luncheon with Colin Powell and President Kibaki and Mrs. Kibaki. And I was taken over to President Kibaki to introduce myself to him. And he was sitting in a chair because he had been in an accident and he couldn't stand up, so I got on my knees and I took both of his hands, made him terribly uncomfortable. The Secret Service people started coming in towards the table wondering what's going on. And I held his hands and I begged him to help the children of Kenya who are displaced and orphaned by HIV AIDS. The numbers are 1.3 million children that have no house, no place to go. And I begged him for his help. So that's what he was referring to when he said, I don't want you to be kneeling down and begging me. But I did. And President Kibaki is now retired. And guess what he's doing? Helping those children. So we can affect all kinds of people, even people of importance like George Bush helping with the project and President Kibaki helping. And all you have to do is ask, be sincere, and listen. All right, so you have a picture that's really precious in your car barn. And it's you, Patty, by a, um, a trailer house. And I want to take us back to just where all this all began. And even before you met and got married at a very young age, what was your family upbringing like? Where did you grow up? And you want to take me down on like John, little Johnny at six years old? Well, we came from an average family in Wausau, Wisconsin. My dad was in a business that was reflective of the economy at the time in the 50s. There were boons and busts, and mostly his business was a bust. So we were pretty much on our own to make money as kids. So my first job was a shoeshine boy. I have my shoeshine kits on the other side of my desk here. And there's one thing I learned that I re really remember about shining shoes. The shinier you get the shoes, the happier the customer, the more they give you in the tip. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a true statement. So it's a quid pro quo, right? So I learned about service. And then I sold donuts door to door, which is where I met my wife, Patty, the love of my life. We're the same age. And I met her at her 15th birthday party, riding my bike that I used for my paper route. I delivered newspapers, 110 newspapers, for the Morning Sentinel. That's when the Milwaukee Journal was a Sentinel newspaper, a morning newspaper. 
I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning to deliver my newspapers before I went to school. My kids hate hearing that story. Obviously, you know why. And we both engaged in helping the world become more acceptable, more accepting of diversity. I want you to tell the story of you guys giving money away when you had nothing, because that was the first story that you told me uh, as it relates to when I was in business. Well, when we got married, we were 20 years old, and we had nothing. We had a Studebaker where the engine blew six weeks before we got married. So I went to Ray Polzer from M&J Auto in Wausau, Wisconsin, and asked him if he would sell me a car based on how much money I'm going to get for my wedding. So he said, sure. So I bought the car, an old used car for $600, station wagon, very utilitarian. And for our wedding, we got $640. So I was able to pay for the car and had $40 left, but then I had to spend $26 on a hotel room the night of our wedding, which left us $14 left to go into our 10 by 45 foot new moon trailer. It was quite a start. This trailer was so uninsulated that the temperature in the wintertime was about 85 degrees at the ceiling, which was about six and a half feet tall. And freezing, water would freeze on the floor. So it was like the heat just kept dissipating out, out of the trailer. But it was a great place for us to get started. We were able to put ourselves through school. The YMCA had a membership program. And we're 20 years old going full-time to school. We had no reason to go to the YMCA. They didn't have a fitness center or anything like that. It was just for children, programming for children. And we decided that we wanted to start giving back, even though we didn't have much to give. So we gave $5 a month to the YMCA, really when we couldn't afford it. Yeah, you had $14. Why, why did you give $5 a month? Well, because it was in our heart. We wanted someday to raise our children in Stevens Point yeah. and have a YMCA, a place for kids to go, part of our ultimate mission statement. You graduate from the university and then do you go work for Century uh, right right after school? Or what, what happens after you graduate from the University of Stevens Point? So when I graduated from UW-Stevens Point in communications, I went to work for my father at Home Insulation Company. And uh, after working there for a year, I decided that I really wanted to kind of break out. I didn't want to be in the, the business that my dad was in. So I applied at several local businesses, including Century Insurance, and was lucky enough to get hired by Century. How old were you when you first got hired by Century? 22. 22 years old. And what? where did you start? I started in personal lines underwriting. Okay. For those of, for those of people that are listening or watching, Century is a, a mutual insurance company that specializes in property and casualty and other insurance lines, and they're located and headquartered in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Yes. Uh, and so you moved up. One of the questions that I want to ask you, John, is obviously you had humble beginnings. When you were 18 years old, did you think that you were going to be wealthy? Did that did did you and Patty dream about that or was it just survival? Or like what what were you thinking at 
when you're my age? What comes to mind is success then was having a station wagon loaded with kids, a Cape Cod house with a white picket fence around it. Back then, it was the typical lifestyle of middle class in America. I never had a dream of being outlandishly successful. So you, you always had a working mentality, and, and that's that's where I'm trying to get at, is what what's your piece of advice to some someone listening to this that maybe doesn't identify as an entrepreneur, but is at a company, and you moved up. How long did it take you to become a VP at Century? Well, I was at Century for 15 years, and I became a VP after about 10 years. And the position that I was really appreciative of more so than others, I had 11 jobs in 15 years, was vice president of the international division, where I learned more about the business that I ultimately started. Any piece of advice, like is there one thing that you could, could, was it just your work ethic? Was it your proactiveness? Was it because you weren't, you weren't introduced to to Stephen Covey and his work yet, but like you naturally had certain leadership and ambition. What what was it that allowed you to move up? Because some people spend their whole life in the same job, and you you're becoming a VP in your thirties at a, at a massive insurance company. Some of the seven habits I had been doing in my life yeah. prior to embracing the seven habits. One of them is coming up with a thir- third alternative that solves problems. I can give you an example. I was in personal lines underwriting. I was in an entry-level position for about 11 or 12 months, then I was made a supervisor, then a manager quite quickly. And one of the problems that Sentry had at the time was communicating with the sales reps and keeping them positive so they go out and sell more business. And some of the management didn't feel like they needed to serve the salespeople the way I did. I felt if we could motivate motivate the salespeople, they would meet their goals and the company would meet its goals. So I hired Miss Fixit, who I haven't seen for 20 years until last week. I saw her and Sharon Pienkowski. And... She was our Miss Fixit. When the sales reps would call in, they would have a problem. She would find the problem, find the solution, and get back to them rather than having a technical underwriter doing that. Those kinds of things impressed my bosses, and it was an opportunity for me to embrace the company's goals as a whole as opposed to my little department. And helping helping you guys be more profitable and having happier customers. Let's talk about a win-win. That's that's huge. Okay, so well, talk to me about you starting your first company. And I, I'm going to preface this with your advice to me when we, when I started my company was take pictures. And then you, you went and you whipped out your photo of you guys starting. Talk to me about your first business idea and why did you feel so strongly about it? What was it? And then what did you do? Like, talk to me about how you started the your company after leaving Century? Well, I left Century because there was a change in executive leadership and I was a supporter and executive with John Jonas. Replacement that they had hired to take over John's job was we were not compatible. 
John Jonas was still in position, and so the new chief operating officer reported to John. And John had given me a letter describing what he wanted me to do, and that was to buy the name Travel Guard from Century Insurance and help start, help to buy the name Travel Guard from Century Insurance so I could start my own business. And that's what I did. Did did John Jonas, did he mentor you through that process? Give you, he sure did. Did he fund any of it in any of the process? No, I bought the company with six-figure money over a five-year period of time. No, there was, there was no uh, financial incentive for me to to do that. At the time, the company was very tight on money, and it was a good opportunity for them to sell a trademark and generate profit off the trademark. So you left, you started with Travel Guard, and did you did you know, did you like sell travel insurance, or is it the idea of travel insurance? Because before that, was anyone selling this travel insurance? I started Travel Guard in 1982 and bought it, bought the name in 1985. When I started it, I did it as a part-time job in Century. While I was vice president of the international division, I started this little product as a fledgling organization. And when the new CFO came in, the new CEO came in, he decided that he wanted to close it down. So he closed down the company, and I started a new company using the name Travel Guard. I can tell you a funny story about that. The New York Times travel writer heard that Sentry was closing down the Travel Guard operation and that it was being sold to someone. So he called me. This was when I had moved out of my basement and I was in an 8 by 8 foot cubicle at the YMCA. See, the YMCA helped me out. Um, he called me and he asked me a series of questions. One of the last things he said to me, he said, you know, I don't know what I can do in my story. And his story gets published in 400 newspapers throughout the world because it was syndicated travel story. Although he worked for the New York Times, they syndicated the travel story throughout the world. He eventually wrote a half-page article about my product, me, the company, but in that interview, he said, John, you could be sitting in some little hole of hole in the wall office someplace, not having any money, and could go bankrupt at any time. How do I know you? I can trust you. And I said, well, I could be sitting in a hole in the wall place. I, I mean, all of that could happen. But you can trust me because I've had a reputation of being trustworthy. So the article came out. It was like 125% positive. Several years later, I was having dinner with him, my wife and his wife, and Paul. And I said, you remember the last question you stated to me in the interview? He said, I can't remember what it was. And he had a little bit more New York uh, flavor to his question. But I said, Paul, you said to me I could be sitting in a little hole-in-the-wall office someplace in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, without any money. And I looked at him and I said, and you were right. <laughs> so that's the famous Paul Grimes story. You've been very successful on stuff like that all the time, negotiating, getting right people on, on your team, doing deals. That's one thing that I've 
I want to gain more inf- insight from you just in our friendship because that's something that I uh, think would come in handy eventually. Um, so during that time, you're, when did you get introduced to Stephen Covey and his seven, seven principles? And Because I know that's been a huge, huge thing in your life. So what, what, what year was that? First, I'm going to tell you about the GMF buyback. When I bought the company back, I had to fly to Paris and meet with the CFO. And so I flew to Paris, and I called him and told him I was there to meet with him. He said, Monsieur Noel, you may not meet with me without a, an appointment at least one week in advance. And I said, well, then I'll just stay here at the hotel. I'll just wait until you call me. No cell phones at that time. So I waited. I waited, I waited, I went on to day three, day four, finally on day five, Jean called me back and said, I will meet with you at two o'clock. So I went to meet with him at two o'clock and I gave him my offer and he said, oh, this is ridiculous. And I said, well, if you're not going to take it and I don't hear from you by tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, I'm going to drop the price by $500,000. So I flew back to Stevens Point, and I didn't get the facts. I didn't get the signed contract from him. So I sent a fax to him, reducing the purchase price by $500,000. And he said, no, Monsieur Noel, please do not do that. And I did it. I dropped it $500,000. And he said, I will have an answer to you tomorrow. I said, well, it better be with the reduced amount on it. So I was playing Mr. Tough Guy. The next morning, I go to the fax machine. Nothing's there. Now I'm worried. I push too hard. In the spirit of negotiating, I'm thinking I learned my final big lesson. So I called Jean back, and he's, I said, so I've been thinking about this faxing going back and forth and wondering if you and he said Monsieur Noel did you receive my fax and I said no I didn't thinking that he didn't send the fax and he was telling me that my reduction of $500,000 wasn't going to make it and that he's going to terminate the relationship so I thought okay I'm out I was just about ready to recant the $500,000 on the phone. And he said, he interrupted me. He said, Monsieur Noel, do you have this fax number? And he gave me the fax number. It was the claims department fax machine. So I jumped up from my desk. I ran downstairs to the claims department, sorted through about 200 claim faxes and found the acceptance of my offer was in the stack of faxes. So I ran back up on the phone and said, so I've received it and that's acceptable. And I hang up the phone and go, <laughs> So sometimes negotiating, you feel like, whoops, I went too far. And, and the power of silence, like you open this conversation with, you listen, you're an incredible listener. And I think sometimes when we have too much to say, we don't listen. And as a result, we miss opportunities. And you could have totally blown it all, the whole thing up if you just talked and that was that when you sold it or that's when you were just when you guys were having 800 employees and you just were like 
cash flowing like because because i mean obviously i'm sitting in your massive mansion now you have a huge car barn and you have largest orphanage in the world and all all these all these kind of things how do you like that didn't happen overnight and was it all after you sold to aig or was that before no i was doing really well before i sold to aig and they recognized how well I was doing in the marketplace because I started in my basement and I was now generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And a lot of that revenue was being sucked from the competitors. And the reason it was being taken from the competitors is because we hired people that wanted to help people. And that was our philosophy in every single department, claims department, underwriting department, correspondence, accounting, every department. We hired people that wanted to help people. If we hired a claims analyst, we might want to hire a former nurse who has empathy and sympathy for the client. That was the thing that really created a valuable company for us. Yeah, and that's. Do you want to tell them the story about when you put all your money on the line? Because I think I think there's a lesson learned in that. Well, a couple of times I drained my bank account. Once was with one of the travel companies that we owned in the early days, where we had put together a group of 220 people to go down to see the Rose Bowl in Pasadena because of the Wisconsin Badgers were playing in the Rose Bowl. I didn't go on the trip, but I went to northern Michigan skiing with my six children. And the day before, on New Year's Eve day, I get a phone call from the manager of the travel agencies saying that the vendor who had all the tickets for us that we had prepaid for didn't show up and was actually a crook. I had, in total, all of my cash assets amounted to $220,000. I wire transferred all of my money that I had saved over the course of many years to him to go out and pay cash and buy tickets for all of those people. We did it. We were recognized by the governor, recognized by all kinds of people, recognized by our commercial customers in the travel business. And we did get repaid because we grew the business and we built the business as being a company that you could trust. Right. Well, the other time was on 9-11. We were flying back from northern France and we had a delay. The delay in Strasbourg held us back four hours on the 10th of September. Uh, so we took off four hours late. We were supposed to be arriving in New York City at Teterboro Airport at 7 a.m. in the morning, the same day as the attack. We got stopped in Goose Bay, Canada, where we got stuck for three days. Had we not been stopped in Strasbourg, we would have been in the Vista Hotel, which was connected to the World Trade Center. And we don't know whether we would have been here, but probably not. Probably wouldn't have made, made it because the tower tumbled down on top of the Vista Hotel. So we got delayed for three days. In the meantime, 
I mean, the world had stopped as far as travel insurance because no one was traveling. Our revenue went from millions and millions of dollars to zero. Yeah. So I got all the employees together, put up a big tent. We had 350, 400 employees, and they all thought I was going to tell them we we're going to close the business because our competitors were closing their business. They were shrinking their business. They were cutting back. They were doing whatever they could to survive. I didn't want to tell our employees that they were no longer going to be employed. Yeah. So we got them together. They quietly sat down, very solemn. And I said, when at war, prepare for peace. When at peace, prepare for war. We've got a war on our hands, and we're going to be as ready as we can. None of you are going to lose your jobs. Patty and I have savings enough to take care of the company for seven months, and we're going to work our way out of this. We're going to do it by going out and selling, taking market share. We're going to increase our sales staff from 45 to 200, and those salespeople are going to be some of you because you're not going to have any calls coming in to buy travel insurance. So we're going to all work together. We're going to open up a SWAT team headquarters, and you're going to help us get our business. That was in September. By December, we had regained our business and built on that. So the following year, we actually were beating our numbers. But an important thing went along with that, and that was living up to our promises. We promised our customers and our agents that we would pay them if they were just afraid to go, which was the only insurance company in the world that did that. So people would call us up and they'd say, I'm on a $50,000 cruise and I don't want to go. We wrote a check out for $50,000 and gave it to them. Did people think you were crazy? No, they didn't think they were crazy. It was in the front page of all of the travel magazines and newspapers and travel agents and tour operators from all over the country came to us and said, we want to do business with you. So it incrementally built our business. It goes back to when you, your humble beginnings of saying, you can trust me. That's like a common theme in your life is those times where you put your whole life and savings on the line. They were, everyone that stayed at the company was there because of you. And to this day, people that have worked for you, John, love you to death because you love them and they know that you'd put your desires and needs before theirs. And I mean, talk about, talk about leadership, talk about an example, talk about a legacy. I still see people on the street or at restaurants in our community. We're in a small community. We're on the SWAT team and they just love the fact that we beat the problem. Osama bin Laden. So you, obviously your employee engagement was off the charts like everyone gathered together, you guys got, were, were more profitable. And, you know, looking back when you reverse engineer what you did, was it just, did you ever have any doubts? Like, was there a moment in your life that you were during that time that you were like, I don't, I think we should close our, or should we downsize? Or was it one of those things where when the towers got hit, like you, you never had a doubt in your mind. We wanted to fight back and we did. When did you get introduced to Stephen Covey and his principles? 1993, 94, 95, we have six children. 
they were all teenagers at the same time. So we struggled with those teenagers and we struggled with our marriage and we went to counseling and we did whatever we could to keep our marriage intact. And we went to this one counselor, which Patty wanted to go to, and I did some research on him. And he was a former coach of a football team. And I said, so we're going to go have a coach in football tell us how to take care of ourselves in marriage? And she said, just go. So I just went. And I was in his office. Ho, 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 ho. And I looked up, and I saw a bunch of books on his bookshelf. And he had one in a prominent place called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he said to me, when I looked up at it, he said, have you read that book? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, you should, because a lot of the things that you're doing at your office, you should be doing at home. And many of the things that you do in your office are in Stephen Covey's book. So I took the book to, on a long trip, I was going to Bermuda. I read two-thirds of the book on the trip to Bermuda. And when I got back to Stephen's point, I said to Nancy, my assistant, some research on Stephen Covey and whether he has a seminar of some kind. She came into my office and she said, yes, he does have seminars, but the price is ridiculous. I said, don't tell me the price. She said, why not? I said, I don't want to know. I just want to go. I don't care how much it is. I want to go. She said, John, I have to tell you, I can't do this without telling you. And I said, Nancy, just do it. So she started closing the door, and she stuck her head back in the door and said, It's $5,000! I said, Book it! <laughs> so it was that deep commitment that I had that I knew that it, there was something that was going to change my life. You know, that was the first book you had me read when we first met. Though obviously, the two the two principles that really jump out at me is number one proactiveness that's in our core values as our company right now is like power being proactive is huge but then also thinking with the end in mind there's something there's something peaceful there's something like magical about thinking about yourself at your funeral because number one it, it humbles you and number two it gives you perspective it gives you perspective on like man this is not going to last forever and how you want to live your life because ultimately you're living your life in such a way on, and other people are going to remember that. So I went out to the Rocky Mountains and I met with Stephen Covey and his team of leadership people at Sundance Resort. And I remember on day two, I had to write my mission statement. And along with that, there was a, along with that, the program asked us to write down what people would say at our funerals. And I remember this guy next to me, he was an entrepreneur as well. He's from Michigan. He and I were writing that statement at the same time. And the tears started coming out of my eyes, blotting the ink on the paper. And he was a 48-hour friend, but enough to go bump me on the elbow and say, can I help you, John? And I said, no, I gotta help myself. It was at that point that I realized that my life with my wife, where I thought it was or where it should be. And I think sometimes we, in success, 
we think that we're doing the right things because we're successful. But we aren't without good, sincere evaluation. So I called Patty that night and asked her to come out to Sundance. She said no. That's when I knew that I was really in trouble. And after several more calls, I convinced her to come out. There in the beautiful Tetons, we truly understood what was happening in our life. And we were performing as a husband and wife, but rather as a president and a vice president. So we re-engaged ourselves. We wrote a mission statement. It took us a week to write a mission statement, but we wrote one. And it's something that we've used all of our we lives. We wrote a section in, in the Living the Seven Habits by Stephen Covey. And do you mind if I read it? Your, your mission statement that you wrote is to live, to love, to laugh, to learn, and to leave a legacy for our children, relatives, friends, employees, and our global and local community, the strength of purpose. In our commitment to our principles and our business success by helping children, encouraging diversity in all areas of life, integrity of living, and all of this with our unwavering core values being passed to our children and grandchildren. To always have our principles and motives clear and to con continually strengthen our legacy. Took a long time to write it, but it means a lot to us. It's, it's extremely powerful to, because... John, that's what you've been doing. And it's like, what I, what I tell people is like, you don't, you don't just bi build a business on accident. You don't just live an intentional life on accident. Like you guys are like, how in the world do you even know where to start if you don't know where you're going? How critical is it for the people listening to this to get clear on what they want and to do that exercise? And if someone's struggling with their marriage or someone's struggling knowing where they want to go, where if you were sitting with them right now, what piece of advice would you give them? To listen and forgive. But here's the deal. So you in business were always super, you were a great business leader, but you just weren't leading at home. I'll give you an example. We had one of our executives come into my office and say, John, I made a $50,000 mistake. I did this and it's printing and it's totally wasted. We're going to have to throw all of the printing away and start over. I said, well, congratulations, Dan. He said, what for? And I said, for being my most valuable employee. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, I haven't invested a $50,000 mistake in anybody else other than you, so you're number one. So it's that kind of humor, yeah. understanding, um, puts people at ease in relationships. I could have reacted the other way. And been angry and upset, slammed my fist on the desk. So, so you went on to sell Travel Guard to AIG, and then you went on to build another insurance company and sold it to Warren Buffett. That you've done a lot of other entrepreneurial things, and I'll open up this interview with reading your bio and all that kind of stuff. But do you mind if I if I ask you some questions of the things that you've really given to me in our mentorship? And I want not only to document number one, but just also for people to hear it coming from the source itself. So I am, whether it's me or someone else, starting a business, what, what piece of advice or guidance would you give someone who has an idea, 
but doesn't have a business yet, what what would you share with them? And I know it's it's tough to give like blanket statements, but what are the what are the things that you think everyone needs to be successful in business? In retrospect, in looking at my life, I believe had I written a mission statement when I got married, that I would have solved a lot of problems because of the focus that it gave us when we were 38, 39 years old was tremendous for us once we had that mission statement written. So that would be the first thing that I would suggest that they do is make sure that they have a written mission statement. In that mission statement, they should look at living the life the way they want. And some people enjoy working. Some people enjoy having fun. It should be whatever that person is wanting to live with for the rest of their lives. When I gave, I asked you a question when I was 20 years old about giving, because I have the same desire to give and be generous and help people. And you gave me the advice. You said, Caleb, always give. That's where you told me about the YMCA story. But don't, don't lose the ability to give millions in the future. And what you meant by that is be strategic with your giving now, but give more out of the principle, not that your couple hundred dollars is going to make any difference. And it does. I don't, but like give because you want to have that mindset, but don't give to the point that you're going to take millions off the table long term. Do you want to unpack what you meant by that? Well, I think the proof is right now in our lives when we're in our 70s and we have been successful in our lives. I believe one of the reasons we were successful is because we took advice from counselors and that was to not sell out a piece of our business, not take any loans. So it was a struggle in the early days in the 1980s not have help in building a business, but we did it. Our kids didn't have new tennis shoes or new blue jeans for a while, but eventually they got them. And it took some time for us to really become an extremely successful company, but we did it through conservative treasury, so to speak. Parenting. There's a lot of parents listening to this, and I know that you've your kids gave you a run for your money, <laughs> probably literally. Um, but when it comes to parenting, knowing what you know now, what what? How would you speak into parents' life, whether their things are going good or bad? What what do you wish you would have known when you first started having kids and raising them? There's a book written called The Road Less Traveled. Patty and I have taken that road of the less traveled. We had our first baby in 1969 and then adopted a baby in 72, then had another baby girl, then adopted a baby girl, and adopted two big, two boys. Each one of those children have assets and strengths just like all of us. And we just have to understand that they're going to be different. They're not all going to be the same, especially when you have six teenagers at one time. It becomes a big challenge. In the end, our kids are now 44 to 50, in the end, we want them to feel the love that we have for them and the success that we hope for them. 
and the guidance that we've given them regarding living their lives in a principle-centered way. You would, you wouldn't major in the minors like a lot of people. You would, if your kids could live a principle-centered life, you've you've done a successful job parenting them. Yes. When it comes to your marriage, and I know this is a big part of your your story, but um, someone who's not married yet, what relationship advice would you give me, hoping to be married someday? But then what? relationship would you or a piece of advice would you give to people that are in marriages whether good or bad because you're a perfect example of being two two types of people an amazing business leader and maybe not so amazing husband but now i mean you and patty are up there being role models that i will go to for relationship advice what what piece of advice would you give me if i'm in married and want to stay happily married well you have to be aligned in your your goals and if we talk about being principle centered if you are principle centered and you want that to be part of your life and your mission statement then you should be speaking to your girlfriend or your potential wife about being principle centered and have the similar kinds of goals that they have and so it goes back to your moment with patty writing out what you guys wanted your life to be like and the mission that you were going for Well, along with being principle-centered, the important part of being principle-centered is embracing the other person's beliefs and their wants in life and their goals. And that comes down to listening skills, where seek first to understand, then to be understood. And in, in every argument that I was in prior to learning that, concept I would get angry and raise my voice once I was trying to collect old cars I was trying to get in the back door of a old car show that was going on if I couldn't get in the back door still paying because I had paid receipts I'd have to go five miles in about an hour and a half around the other side of the uh, dis- display area so I point my car in towards the door that says out only and this guy comes up to me and says can't you read so he was not embracing the principles of seek first to understand and then to be understood and I said oh I'm sorry I thought that I could get in here because I, I'm going to have to go an hour and a half around and this is an old 1957 Chevy I don't know if it's going to make it you can't go in this way just read the sign and get going. You're holding up the crowd. So I said, you must be having a frustrating day because I bet a lot of people are trying to get through this. He said, yeah, you're right. And then I started doing empathic listening to him, listening to what his part of the story is in this altercation that we're having. And the more I listened to him, the quieter he got, the more open he got. And then I said, okay, so you have a good day and I'm going to be leaving. I'll be seeing you in an hour and a half. He said, hey, buddy, you're the first person today that listened to me. You come on in. So it's a small example, but it's really how people want to live. They want to be important enough to be heard by someone that they're talking to. 
So in marriage and in children, listening is important. The base of a foundational marriage. Even what you said earlier, when when I first met you and you asked me to continue and I did my whole intro, you did that so that you could better understand. And you and you came across, your presence was so strong and you didn't even talk. You're just listening, but you your eyes were very like you're very engaged. And that is one thing that I'm really glad that you talked about because in thinking through just our conversations, that's one thing that I've picked up on from you. And it's always something I can do a better job improving because I always I like to hear my voice a little too much sometimes. One of the important elements of listening is keeping in the back of your mind that you may think that you're right, but if you listen, you might find out you're wrong. So in my life, I've found out many times I've been wrong, and I'm so thankful that I spent the time listening to my kids, to employees, to officials, to politicians, is that listening skill really enhances your ability to make a good judgment. Talk to me about your foundation and how in the world is someone from central Wisconsin, I mean, back in the day, is, is it still the largest orphanage in the world? And how in the world did that happen? As far as we know, it's the largest orphanage in the world. Not through just my efforts, through all kinds of people's efforts. So I want to make that clear that it's uh, our foundation is small, but effective. In 1995, we started working in Kenya with a priest by the name of Father Angelo Agostino, who was picking up AIDS-infected babies along riversides that were buried up to their heads out of garbage bins in hospitals because they were infected with AIDS. He and Sister Mary Owens picked these little ones up and put them in a warehouse, basically, because they had no money, and found volunteers to help care for the kids. They started that in 1992. We got involved in 1995, and I believe in sustainable help. And I'll tell you a funny story. In 1999, Father D'Agostino called me and asked me if I would help with paying for hotel space for the volunteers that are coming because they were staying at cheap hotels and it wasn't very safe for them. And I said, well, for that, I wouldn't do that. And he said, what do you mean you wouldn't do that? Spoken like a priest like I had in high school. And I said, Father Dag, in all due respect, it's not sustainable. What's going to happen when I'm gone? Who's going to take care of the, that expense? I can afford it, but I don't want to spend it that way. Yeah. He said, what are you thinking of? And I said, oh, I'm thinking of building a hotel right on the property of Numbani home. He said, really? And I said, yes, then you'll always have space, won't you? He said, that's a great idea. And he hung the phone up quick and he started doing the plans the very next day. And he built it, and it's there today, serving the, the village. 
So sustainable giving has has been a game changer, and that's one thing, whether it was trees, and you have some cool stories there, or just the way that you guys would give, you, you're setting up systems that it's it's it, you're, it's going to continue to give whether you and Patty are around or not. People are going to be served. So on one of our websites, on the Trees for Children website, we have a statement that says, stop giving and start investing. Yes. And in that case, Father Dag and I came up with the idea to build a village that was modeled after a village that we had built down in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. It was for about 100 babies and children who had lost their parents to AIDS. And we would bring the grandmas in, and if they had four children, we'd give them six more that didn't have grandmas. If they had seven kids, we'd give them three more that didn't have grandmas. So it was all leveled out at 10 kids per family. And so we did a this little village in South Africa, and I had taken all of my executives down to South Africa to see it. So Father D'Agostino heard that I was down in South Africa, and he wanted to see the village that we had built in South Africa, which was done in partnership with Nelson Mandela. After my wife told me that, why would I be going to South Africa? How were we going to find a project to do? And I said, we'll talk to Nelson Mandela. And she said, John, you're just a cheesehead from Wisconsin. You're not going to be talking this to Nelson Mandela. So three weeks later, we were in Nelson Mandela's office in Johannesburg, and we met with the president of his foundation, Nelson Mandela Children's Fund, which we were very much aligned with. And we jointly built a project, which is still operating today. It's been 20 years. Well, Father Dag fell in love with his concept. He said, we want to build one even bigger for 200 children. By the time he got on the airplane back to Nairobi, he said, now it's 300 children. And he kept elevating the number until he got to 1,000. And I said, Father Dag, I don't have enough money to do that. We are going to need some big help. And he said, John, don't worry about the money. I'll get the money. Sternly, which he always talked to me sternly. Uh. I said, where are you going to get it from? You just wait and see. So the next week he jumped on a plane and he flew to Rome and he got the Pope to agree to do a commemorative stamp in the papal postal office and raise $2.2 million with this papal stamp, commemorative stamp. So that put us in the realm of possibilities. Then we got another million or $2 million from us and other organizations. But it was the Pope that was the standout contributor. He was very much like me. We had similar personalities. If someone told us, no, we can't do it, we probably would do it. So it's operating today with 1,000 children and babies, schools. It's just it's going great. So just before Father D'Agostino died, I said, what are we going to do to make this village sustainable? He said, I don't know. We just have to people have people keep giving. I said, that's not going to do it. So on one of my trips, I was flying from London to Nairobi, and I sat next to a guy who was a real, true, 
lumber baron from London doing business in Africa, planting trees all over wherever he could. So I told him my story about this village, and obviously I was trying to draw money out of his pockets to give to the little ones. And he finally turned to me and he said, John, you seem like a nice guy, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm not giving you any money. I'm going to give you an idea. And that's what you need instead of money. So he gave me the idea of planting trees, fast-growing trees. And ultimately that turned into a plan that was put together 12 years ago that we would plant melia trees. Melia trees are fast-growing hardwood trees that mature in 10 to 12 years. And the pro forma that we put together showed that after year 11 or 12, the first year's production would produce $1.4 million in profit. Now our updated projection, because the cost and market price of the Melia tree is doubled, almost tripled that, that number is $4 million. The Nimbani village in the future will be well taken care of by planting trees that regrow themselves. They don't have to be cut and dug and new trees planted. They regrow themselves. Sustainable legacy. If you were going to sit across from someone that wanted to be a successful entrepreneur, what financial advice would you give them on how they can be a successful entrepreneur? So many entrepreneurs end up losing their money and others' money by having a difficult time raising the money, keeping the money, and using it effectively. So my experience as an entrepreneur, I never used anybody else's money. I used my own money. And if you can do that, it's the right way to go. Creates a longer gestation period for your idea. But I believe it's much more sound. The advice that I've given budding entrepreneurs is to struggle in the early years so that you can make hay in the later years. John, one of the things I want to end this, this conversation with is a question that I ask every single guest and is a question that I've asked you many times before. And the question goes like this. This is your last day on this earth. You're with the people that you love the most. What are the things that you're telling them on all the things that you've learned? What are the, what are the conversations looking like knowing that this is your last day? Well, I'd have to go back to writing my mission statement. It's the, the bellwether thing that I did in my life to make me feel like when I wrote down what people would say about me at my funeral back in 1995 and I realized that it's not what I was doing not what I wanted to do with my life not how I wanted to be looked at in my life I made significant changes in my marriage my relationship with my kids my relationship with employees, people in general, to live a life of helping people and helping myself through following my mission statement. And obviously the ways of doing that 
are being open and listening to other people. Being a republicrat, not being an autocrat. Embracing the concept of coming up with a third alternative. Those things in life, especially wrapping it all around with listening to other people and embracing what ideas they have is critical in the foundational support that you have in your life. I want to make sure that my wife Patty knows how much I love her and that she's been the mainstay in my life and has understood me from the bad points and the good points. One of my favorite quotes is by Andy Stanley, and he, and he said this at a leadership conference that I just rocked my world. He said, the value of your life is always measured by how much of it was given away. John, thank you for living an extremely valuable life, modeling that for people like me. And like, thank you. I love you. And I'm really grateful that you're in my life. Thank you, Caleb. And I'm grateful you're in my life. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. And one of the one of the things, one of the memories that I have in just reminiscing on, on the experiences that I've had just in, in his office and in his, in his house and just updating him on business is when I first started talking with him, I had this brilliant idea to do have a call center and sell uh, sell funeral insurance to seniors. It was some idea that I heard and I'm like, man, we could do this. And I knew that John owned a call center. And one thing I really admire about John is he didn't tell me that this was a bad idea. He asked me to build a business plan, which I did. Then he put me in touch with the person that ran his call center. I spent a day shadowing and we talked a couple times. He wanted me to get, he wanted me to do some research on, uh, talk to people at funeral homes and learn more about the industry. And I came to the conclusion after doing my research that this would be a really bad idea, mainly because at first I thought this product was going to be a really good thing. And then I realized that this, this would take it, this would indirectly take advantage of a lot of seniors that would never be able to benefit from it because selling funeral insurance to seniors who don't really know what's going on over the phone is just not something that I wanted to dedicate my life to. And John knew that from the very beginning. He knew that I would come to this conclusion. And I don't know if he would have let me, you know, come up with the money and like actually go for it. But what he did was instead of saying no, instead of saying that's a terrible idea, or instead of like trying to talk it through, he he made me do the work and he listened. He listened and truly came down to my level and understood my desire to want to run a successful business. And and it, that was just one of the many examples of John being an amazing sounding board, but someone that's just helped me really come to the conclusions. And I, I remember getting into this business and learning strategies. He actually, John uh, uh, actually hired an attorney and for an hour and a half, I got just crushed he just totally annihilated me like everything that i was saying i was gave him the pitch when i first started on why life insurance was the best play and how it worked and how we designed it and how we sell it and how we work it set it up and this attorney would just cr he just 
tore me apart. And I remember at the end being so livid. I was so mad, not not at the attorney, not at John, just like I was frustrated that I didn't have all the answers. And John gave me a hug and said, Caleb, I'm super proud of you. Go and do your research and answer all the questions that you couldn't answer. And it's that tough love and those stories of just these, those are just a few stories of just just the journey that we've gone through that has really developed me and and has given me the confidence to do to do what I'm doing. And also, I'm in the process of of, of starting a foundation and just thinking about you know what 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 I want to like actually do in my life and how I want to best serve people and how I want to be intentional in that and how I want to lead people. And John's just been a great person that's gone before me and, and has helped me understand that this stuff is possible. So I would love to hear from you guys. Betterwealthpodcast.com is where you can go. You can reach out to me. Uh, please let me know your biggest takeaway. And uh, until next time, I hope you have an amazing rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.